myself say good evening not good morning <clears throat> and it is so good uh, to be to be together um, this sure beats preaching in my basement and as we began to, to gather in person uh, we're mindful of many who may not be comfortable or may not yet be able uh, to join us and so we are uh, live streaming our service uh, at, at least our sermon uh, over the over the foreseeable future uh, and we pray that God enables and allows us both through progress uh, on this virus as well as uh, comfort amongst one another uh, for us to be able to gather and and as we gather today it's fitting as we close out our renew series that we can do so uh, in person uh, to take some time uh, once more as we as we evaluate uh, what it means to recommit ourselves to Christ and his church uh, that's that's what we've been looking at over the last few weeks, looking from a number of different places about what it means to return to the basics. Uh, you see, as we've talked about uh, what our mission is as a church to multiply disciples who delight in, declare and display the gospel in all of life and for the good of our community, we know that that mission isn't just about executing a strategy as important as that strategy is. Uh, underneath all of it are some foundational basics that we want to be true of us as a people not merely for the sake of growth, but for the sake of faithfulness to Christ, for the sake of faithfulness to who God has called us to be in the light of what He has done for us in the gospel. And so uh, we've, we've talked through what it means to, uh, to, to know Christ, to, to desire to know Christ more. We saw in Philippians 3, Paul's um, passion to, uh, to, to know Christ and to so identify with Him in His sufferings, to, uh, to see His life, and not just to confess Christ, but to be conformed to Christ, that, that we would see the surpassing worth of knowing Christ that's greater than anything else. In fact, that in comparison to knowing Christ, everything else looks worthless, and that we would commit ourselves to go hard after knowing Christ, not just in this new year, but as the pattern of our lives. We considered what it means to be a church that's defined by community. Uh, community is a, an easy word to, to identify with, and yet it's a, uh, it's a harder idea uh, to cultivate. You see, we, we've said as a church, one of the things that I've rejoiced in here at Treasuring Christ uh, over our first uh, year is that TCC has be, become known as a place where people can experience community, where people enjoy community. Uh, and yet, I, I want us to, to remember, to, to never forget that when you experience community, when we walk into a church and experience community, you are experiencing community not because you happen to find it, but because somebody else is working to cultivate it and you're giving yourself for the sake of cultivating it. You see, community, we've said, isn't found. Community is cultivated. Community is fostered by God's people giving themselves to one another by serving one another, by loving one another, by bearing burdens to one another, by, by helping hold each other accountable to walk in holiness, by seeking to spur one another along in good works, including making our faith known and serving others outside the body of Christ. That's what it means to be a compelling community when our life together, centered on God's Word, empowered by the Spirit, bears witness to the Gospel to a watching world. That's who we want to be as a church. So that foundation of community is central to who we are. And last week we talked about uh, the foundational aspect of gathering together as God's people. And man, we've been on a journey uh, over this last year of, of figuring out how uh, it looks to gather virtually, what it looks like to gather in a park, what it looks like to gather in a home, um, 
I feel like you could make a Dr. Seuss book of all the different things, you know, this one did this and this. We've tried all the different things of what it means to, uh, to try to foster being together, uh, even, even when it's not been ideal. Uh, but we reminded ourselves that we don't just gather because, well, hey, that's what the church has always done, so we should gather. But we gather because God has called us together as a people to draw near to Him. Right? Because of the work of Christ on the cross, He says, draw near with full assurance of faith. And he says, as you gather together, you hold fast your confession, a confession that we've watched some of our own profess in their, in their baptism as they profess faith in Christ and make that known publicly to others. And all of us, as we seek to follow Christ, when we gather together, what we're doing is not just attending church, but what we're doing is strengthening our resolve to hold fast to the confession that God has called us to in Christ. And then ultimately, we saw that as we gather together, as much as I love preaching, as much as preaching is central to the life of the church, Paul in Hebrews, the author says, gather together, don't neglect to gather together, but instead encourage one another. One of the primary reasons that we gather is because as God's people, we need to see one another, to consider each other, and to stir one another up, Hebrews says, to love and to good works. So we've been talking about these basics and today, I think we come to perhaps the most basic of, uh, of all acts as a Christian and what should be uh, basic and fundamental to the life of the church, and that's prayer. What does it mean to be a praying church? We've said to carry out our mission, while our strategy isn't everything, it's also not unimportant, right? Our strategy is to, is to gather and to scatter weekly, to gather as God's people on Sunday and to scatter into the everyday rhythms of our life to live with gospel intentionality. That's, that's part of what we do as a church. So uh, our mission as a church isn't just defined by the, the gathering together and the programs that are a part of our church, but really we are the mission living out our lives with gospel intentionality wherever God places us. He doesn't get your address wrong. He hasn't got your work wrong. He hasn't given you the circle of friends for by an accident, but He's put us in those places for the purpose of reflecting Him and, and living on mission with Him. And then we, we regather midweek in groups, and, and, and small groups are a place, not the only place where you experience community, but it's where we've said we're going to intentionally foster an environment where you can know others and be known by others in community, and where you can fellowship with others, grow in spiritual maturity as we discuss God's Word, and, and ultimately be encouraged and held accountable to live on mission. And we've said as a church that our mission would, would lead us to be a people for multiplying disciples, that we have to be a growing people. We talked about knowing in Christ, but we want to be a church that grows people through developing disciples and leaders within the church. We, we want to call everyone to, to lean into the work that God has given us to make disciples. That's not just a, a program uh, that's driven by the church, but that's a, a commitment that every believer bears to make disciples, to look at others and seek their spiritual good and ha- help them take the next step in their walk with Christ. And, and even as we, we look ahead into a new year, we've, we've pushed pause on so much as a church. And we, uh, in this sermon series, and we look ahead and we say, we recognize as a, as a young church, as we step back in to these rhythms with all the right precautions, that, that we need you as the church to embrace different opportunities to serve, to, to exercise leadership in various capacities within our church. 
We want to be a people, a church who grows others through developing disciples and leaders. We want to be a church who's generous, who gives, gives of ourself and our resources for the sake of the church, to build up the church and to serve our community. As a church, we, we recognize that God has, has called us not to exist for ourselves, but to exist for Him and for others. And that means that we give of ourselves. I love the description that Paul gives to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, he describes himself. And he says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. That's the vision of ministry. Not just, not, not just my calling as a pastor. That's our calling as believers. That we would look at one another. We would look at the community that God has placed us in and say, God, help me to spend and be spent for the sake of others. And then we go. We go because He came. He sends us. Just as we've received the Spirit as followers of Christ, He sends us into the world, into our homes, into our work into school, into our relationships, to faithfully represent Christ and to make disciples. So this is our, our strategy that we're seeking to carry out our mission, but I, I want to bring it into focus for us today by saying that what we need more than a strategy, or perhaps what, what the better way to say it, what we need to infuse our strategy to enable us to carry out the mission that God has called us to, is ultimately not more strategy, not more planning, as important as those things are. What we need is God's presence. We need God's presence. So our strategy as a church is ultimately worthless if we're not a praying church, because it's in prayer that we have access to the presence of God. And from His presence comes the power that we need to live for Him. So I want us to look at the book of Acts in somewhat of a a little bit of an unusual way, we're going to cover the entirety of the book of Acts. I figure if we start with Acts 1-1, we can make it to Acts 28, which should read straight through. We can probably make it in the next 45 minutes. <clears throat> I'm just kidding. Uh, we won't do that. <clears throat> but we're going to cover the scope of the book of Acts. Uh, because as I began to think about um, what it meant to be a praying church, I couldn't help but just be drawn to multiple passages in the book of Acts that give us a snapshot of what the, the early church was all about. And when we think about those basics, you think about the foundations to the church and, and to, to the work that God did through the church in the book of Acts. I don't think you can read long in the book of Acts without coming to the conclusion that the secret of the early church was that they were a people who were often and regularly in prayer. So we're going to look at a few different places <clears throat> to see what it means to be a praying church from the book of Acts. And the, the first I, I, want to, I want us to see is that the church is birthed through prayer. The book of Acts is the second part uh, to the Gospel of Luke, both written by Luke. <clears throat> if Luke gives us the account of the life and the teaching of Jesus culminating in His death and resurrection, the, the book of Acts gives us the account of what Jesus continued to do through the church, through those people who had trusted in Christ and were living for Him. <clears throat> and so it begins uh, giving us that final encounter between Jesus and His disciples. And it says <clears throat> that before He was taken up, uh, He told them to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. To wait for the Holy Spirit to come before they would go out and carry His mission to bear witness to Christ in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's what it says in, in Acts 1.8 that you will receive power and the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
So to carry out their mission, Jesus directs His followers to wait for the Spirit. And what we see them doing in verse 14, if you look down, <clears throat> says after they came back uh, from uh, the mount called Olivet, they came back to Jerusalem about a day's journey. <clears throat> they all went to the upper room. All the believers, Jesus' disciples and the, um, the women uh, who had followed Jesus, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus' brothers uh, were there. <clears throat> and it says in verse 14 that all of them were with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer together. There they were, <clears throat> as God's people, devoting themselves to prayer. See, their waiting was marked by praying. As God had told them to wait, what they knew they needed to do was to pray. So as, as God's people, whenever we are waiting on something, what we should be doing in our waiting, it's not a passive waiting, it's active because we ought to be seeking God in prayer. And in many ways, the beginning of the church is, is really the beginning of a new and fresh work of the Holy Spirit. See, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon believers for a time. You would see uh, perhaps uh, the best example is uh, the story of Samson, how the Holy Spirit would come upon Samson and give him strength to do the act that God had called him to do. But with the new covenant, God promised that the Spirit would come to dwell in us and, and would indwell us to empower us to obey God. And so what you see happening now is that Jesus is promising the Spirit is coming. And He's coming to indwell those who believe in Me to enable and empower you to bear witness. So the beginning of the church is the beginning of a fresh work of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and so what we could say in many ways is that from the beginning of the church, from its foundation, there's always been a connection between believers praying and the active work of the Holy Spirit. How do we experience the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of our church? What we see modeled in the book of Acts is that we would be a praying church. It would be true of us that we would be made up of individual believers who pray and that we put a priority even in our gatherings, both in our worship and in other occasions, to be a church that prays. A.W. Tozer said, The world is perishing for lack of knowledge of God and the church is famishing for want of His presence. What does it mean? How do we remedy this famishing for want of God's presence? Well, it's to, it's to utilize the very means that God has given us to experience His presence. That we would pray. When we pray, we're inviting the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And that's exactly what happened in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place doing just what they were doing in verse 14, most likely this time gathered uh, in the temple because when the Spirit comes, <clears throat> it says they all begin bearing witness to Christ, all begin bearing witness to the mighty acts of God, but this time uh, in, the, in a language that all the nations that were represented at Pentecost could begin to hear and understand what the disciples were saying. So the Spirit comes and bears witness to Christ through His disciples as the church prays. This is the beginning of the church. The church is birthed through prayer. And so we as a church today, even as we head into this new year, to be reminded that what we need more than anything isn't a fresh strategy. What we need more than anything is God's presence to be with us. You guys remember the story 
of Moses um, after he had gone up and done the Ten Commandments and he comes down and, um, you know, Israel basically has just done a total 180. Uh, Aaron got overwhelmed and intimidated by all the people and he's like, give me your gold. Let me put together, you know, a golden calf. And he's like, here, here's your God uh, that brought you out of Egypt. And uh, Moses comes down and throws down the tablets and he goes back up on the mountain and he's pleading with God. And basically God is, God is saying, I'm done with the people of Israel. Uh, for their disobedience. And, and, God's, and Moses says, God, we don't want to go. He says, you can go on, but I'm not going with you. And Moses says, we're not going to go unless you go with us. God, we want your presence. And as he intercedes and pleads with God, God <clears throat> relents from the judgment that Israel was deserved and he allows his presence, his goodness to pass before them, pass before Moses. And then indeed his presence goes with Israel as they go out of Egypt. I don't, I don't want to go forward into this new year without God's presence. And so if that's the case, that means that we can't go forward in this new year without being a praying church. Because it's through prayer that we have access to God's presence. The second thing that I want us to see as we consider the book of Acts is that the church is defined by prayer. Natalie read this passage for us. I think it's interesting to think about what defines a church, uh, or really what defines anyone. Um, you think about maybe a friend that you know uh, who's uh, really, really got a particular passion for a hobby, and that thing defines them. You know, you think about that friend, and you think that's just who they are. Um, you know, I, I, I still have a love for peanut butter, but uh, last year we found out my son has a an allergy to peanuts. I used to say, like I used to introduce myself by saying, you know, I love Jesus, I love my family, and I love peanut butter and good coffee, you know. So you give me some coffee from Ethiopia and some peanut butter, and like that's, you know, that defines Michael. Um, it's a pretty simple existence that I, leave, I live, you know, when I think about that. Um, but, but something that we're particularly passionate about, something that uh, we regularly practice, something that that would define us and mark us. That's, that's what it means to be defined by something. When you look at the early church and you think about what they were defined by, Acts 2, verses 42 through 47 is a great starting place. It says, <clears throat> after Pentecost comes, it says that about 3,000 believers were added uh, to the church. So you have Jews and God-fearing people from all these nations that come to Jerusalem for Pentecost and they hear the disciples bearing witness to the mighty acts of God in Christ, and many of them believe and are baptized, and, and all of a sudden we've got the first church. And it says that they began to gather together, and it says in verse 42, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, uh, the teaching from the Old Testament and the bearing witness to the testimony and the teaching of Jesus. They devoted themselves to fellowship, which is the word that we get community from. It's, it's more than just a cool small group that they had, but they shared their life together. We see later on, it says in verse 43, that they actually shared their possessions with one another. All who had need, they helped meet those needs. <clears throat> and it says that they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, uh, which is a reference to the Lord's Supper, that they partook of the Lord's Supper, which was a larger meal at the time that also included the bread and the, and the wine. And then they devoted themselves to the prayers. Now, this is a statement that reflects the background, the Jewish background of the early church. They prayed regularly. They went to the temple multiple times a day to pray. That was true of the early believers. 
But now their prayer is directed to the Father because of the work of Christ and empowered by the Spirit. They were a people who prayed. This is what defined them. These things defined them. A, a church who uh, submitted themselves to the teaching of God's Word, of the testimony of His Word. They were committed to community. They were committed to, to partaking of the Lord's Supper and to praying. That was the thing defined by prayer. And it says particularly that they devoted themselves to these things. The word devoted means that they held fast to it. They continued in it, persevered in it. I, I think often in our day, as we think about church and what people perceive church to be, if they were to come to church and they would think, what, what are those Christians devoted to? What are those Christians really defined by and marked by? <clears throat> Would they, would they come away with the conclusion that they are a people devoted to prayer? That's what I pray we would be. And even as I assess what we do and, and, and how we gather and what we prioritize as a church, I say, God, help us to be more like the early church. Help us to be like this pattern that you've laid out in Acts chapter 2, that this would define us. And, and because when we think about their devotion to prayer, it wasn't merely part of their church gathering. You know, I think as we think about prayer, it's easy to think about it being something that we do within our service, which is essential, right? <clears throat> I, I often think as we pray as a church, both in our pastoral prayer and other parts within the church, I, I want to pray in such a way that doesn't just help people transition on and off the stage. I, I want to pray in such a way that it's not just a, um, you know, um, an obligated conclusion to something, but I, I want all of us to stop and, and recognize the abundant privilege that we have to come before God, to, to pray and to, to enter into His presence, to recognize that what we do when we gather is draw near to God. And I don't want our drawing near just to be because you, you heard a good sermon and it made you feel closer to God, but I want us to draw near because when you came, you actually stopped and you entered into God's presence with God's people in prayer. That we would be defined by prayer. <clears throat> and it was something that reflected their life. We see in, in Acts 2, 42-47, that they gathered together um, in the temple, uh, as well as day by day, it says verse 46, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. It was both formal and informal. This wasn't just something that they, uh, they did occasionally, but it was something that, that permeated their relationships outside of their gathering together as well as in their gathering together. One commentator said that the vitality of the church is a measure of the reality of its prayers. The vitality of the church is a measure of the reality of its prayers. So if that were to be true... <clears throat> What could we take away from looking at the early church in this passage here in 42 through 47? They devoted themselves to prayer. Look at verse 47. It says, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. As we pray, as we are marked by prayer, we'll experience the fruit that only God can bring. See, because as we pray, we, we automatically are becoming dependent on God. In our praying, we're stopping whatever we're doing and we're saying, God, you're what we need. We're coming to you and depending on you to meet us where we're at. We pray for growth, yes, 
but we, we can't just see prayer as a, as a tool to help us accomplish our growth, but we must see prayer as us humbling ourselves before God and, God and saying to God, God, we want you more than anything else, and we want you to have your way among us. That's what we do in prayer. That's what it means to be devoted to prayer. We also see it in Acts 6, that the church is defined by prayer. In Acts 6, we have the first uh, church conflict. Uh, the, the church was caring for the widows uh, in, in the congregation, those who were both Hellenistic, uh, who were Greek-speaking uh, background, and those who were Hebrews, those who were Aramaic-speaking background. And most likely, there's, there's a little bit of mix-up because uh, they're not speaking primarily the same language, or perhaps there's some uh, uh, some some type of animosity between the groups that's leading to the Hellenist being neglected in the distribution, the daily distribution of meeting needs. And so what happens is the apostles say, okay, we're going to select seven men from a Hellenist background to help address the need. And these seven men weren't just ultimately uh, there to, um, they, they weren't just merely helping distribute uh, the food and the, and the resources, but we see uh, and Stephen and later on in Philip, both of them were among the seven. These, these men were powerful proclaimers of the gospel, servants of the church. And, and so uh, they select these seven men from a Hellenist background, giving voice to those who had been neglected and putting into leadership um, those who can speak on their behalf, which sounds like a novel idea for handling issues within the church. Um, that's free advice for us as we think about what that looks like um, even in our own day. But the point here is to look at verse 4. As they, as they met a need, they said that we, as the apostles, those who are leading the church, must be people who are devoted to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. There's a lot that we must do as a church to serve the needs within our church. There's a lot that we must do to, <clears throat> to be faithful, to reflect Christ and serve the needs in our community, but all of it springs forth from a church that's being led by people who are devoted to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. That this was central. The apostles saw this as central to what the church needed, as well as what motivated them, in turn, to seek to care well for the body, as well as to serve others. It just strikes me as I think about the description in chapter 2 and the priority of the apostles here in chapter 6, devoted to prayer. Uh, another quote by A.W. Tozer. He said, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we would do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. Whether that's an exaggeration or not, I think the point uh, is worth taking to heart how much we do just because we're confident that we've seen it work somewhere else or we think it would be helpful and how quick we press into decisions without stopping to, to pray. It's so easy to live life and to do church without a, a pervasive sense of our need for God. And because that's true in our own lives personally, and I don't say this to guilt us, but I say this to, to hopefully be be real, as well as within our church, because we can do so much life and so much church without this pervasive sense of our need for God, prayer becomes something that's nice, but not necessary. It becomes something that is good to add, but, uh, but we don't see it as absolutely essential. 
But the apostle said, no, this is absolutely essential. We must address this. We must be devoted to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So I, I think in our own lives, there's personal application here as well as corporate application. How do we reflect this devotion to prayer? How can we become defined by prayer? I want us to spend more time in prayer, but I also want us to consider our own lives. Think about your life. Think about the prayers you've prayed this week. Think about how much time you've spent in prayer. Think about the people that you prayed for by name. It's always a, a pressing uh, or a revealing question to say, <clears throat> to ask ourselves, if God were to answer every one of your prayers this week, what would have happened? Who would have come to faith in Christ? What need would have been met? What comfort would have a friend received? It must be a church defined by prayer. <clears throat> and that begins with us each looking at our own selves and our own lives, as well as considering our life together as a people. <clears throat> a third point I want us to see is the church responds to suffering and trials in prayer. The church responds to suffering and trials in prayer. We don't have time to read through all of these, but just make note of them so you can go back and read them in full. In full. But in Acts 4, uh, verses 23 through 31, Peter and John gather with the believers to pray after they've been released from being on trial, basically an informal trial of sorts, before the, uh, the Jewish council uh, for preaching the gospel. As soon as they're released um, and, and they're warned by the Jewish leaders at the time, hey, um, you're, you're going to go free, but stop preaching in the name of Jesus. What do they do? They gather together with the, uh, with the believers and, and they begin to pray. And they begin to pray. They say, God, help us to be faithful to you, but whatever you do, God, help us not to, to have to suffer for your sake. Uh, God, help us to uh, preach the gospel, but, but help us to, to be cool and accepted by everyone in our surrounding community. If you read it, that's not what they pray, <clears throat> right? They say, Sovereign God, we thank you that you've counted us worthy to suffer for your name. Give us boldness to bear witness to Jesus. I mean, it just blows your mind, right? Here they are, they're being warned. Like, get in line. Knock it out with that Jesus stuff. Or else. And they get together and they say, God, thank you. Thank you that you've counted us worthy to suffer for your name, to bear witness to Jesus. Give us boldness to bear witness to Jesus. <clears throat> In Acts 2, Peter gets arrested. Um, same trouble that, P that, um, <clears throat> that Peter and John got into in chapter 4, but this time he gets put in prison. And he gets put in prison. What does the church begin to do? They begin to panic and call anybody they can to see if they can get them out. <clears throat> no, they don't do that. They gather together and they begin to pray. They begin to pray, and there they are gathered and praying. I love, I love Acts 12 because as they're praying, God answers their prayer, and Peter is released from prison. And Peter uh, strolls out of prison at night miraculously, and he comes to, uh, to the house where the believers are praying, and he knocks on the door. And there's a little girl who's been in the prayer meeting, and she goes and sees it, and she's like, it's Peter, and runs away. She's like, you won't believe it. It's Peter. And, and, and what I love about it is that it's such a, uh, an encouragement to me that as a church, sometimes we pray 
we pray for God to do something and then He does it and we act surprised, right? We're asking God, open, open a door for us to have a location to meet together. And then He opens a door and we're like, wow, can you believe that He allowed that? How did that happen? We're praying for somebody to come to faith in Christ and they come to faith in Christ and we're like, man, I didn't see that coming. We pray and then we're surprised. And the early church did it too so we can take heart. But we shouldn't be surprised when we respond to suffering and trials and prayer that God hears us. <clears throat> he answers us. In Acts 16, Paul and Barnabas thrown in jail, this time because they're preaching the gospel in Philippi. And there they are, they're thrown in jail in Philippi and somehow chained together, probably on the other side of where they're in prison is the guard keeping watch. And <clears throat> an earthquake takes place that loosens the bonds of the prisoners and the prisoners are getting away. Um, but before the earthquake happened, Paul and Barnabas were praying and worshiping. Seems like a great time to worship as you're imprisoned uh, for preaching the gospel. There they are praying and worshiping and they cry out and they say, "Don't! Uh, we're all here. Don't kill yourself, he says to the, to the guard. <clears throat> and through their prayer and through their worship and their intervention in that moment, God saves the Philippian jailer and his family. In all of these occasions of trial and in suffering, God's people saw it as an occasion to pray. Now, I'll be the first to say, sometimes as we face trials, it's like we can't even gather our minds to focus on prayer. I get the, the heartache of walking through some trials where it just seems impossible to pray. And we have the, the confidence that even when we don't know what to pray, Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, intercedes on our behalf. What a humbling reality that is. But as we see in the early church, whenever they faced a trial, whenever they faced trouble, they leaned into God. They prayed. And their primary prayer wasn't for deliverance. As I jokingly was pointing out, it wasn't just to, to be released from the trial, but instead it was for God to work in it, for Him to accomplish His purpose in their lives. And in fact, we see this most fully in Philippians. Uh, Philippians 1, 19-20, Paul, as he's uh, talking to the Philippians, um, he says, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit, that Christ, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul, once again, is in prison. That's uh, kind of a hobby of his. And he says, I'm confident through your prayers and the power of the Spirit that this will turn out for my deliverance. But what if he doesn't get out of prison? Well, look at what he says. It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but with full courage, now as is always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul says, I'm confident God will deliver me either in life or in death. Through your prayers and through the power of the Spirit, God will accomplish His purpose in my life, in your life, in our church, in His church. That's how God works. And so here we are. We've walked through a national trial, a national crisis, and we're not over it, right? We, we, we have multiple crises going on in our country and in the church. How do we respond? There's more that we must do than pray. But the question that I can't get over is, have we done enough praying? Are we a praying people who are ready to do God's work? Are our hearts ready to hear God's Word, to 
see one another, to love one another, to serve our community, to be His ambassadors, to be His witnesses, to stand and speak on His behalf, not only when we're together, but when we're in the world. When we face trials and we face sufferings, our default ought to be to be a people who gather to pray, who pray personally and who pray corporately. That's what defined the church. And finally, the last point I want us to see is that the church, church's mission is advanced through prayer. Whenever the gospel pushes out from Jerusalem in the book of Acts, it's every step of the way that God either directs or redirects the steps of His people in prayer. We see it in Acts 10. Peter is, is doing his thing, praying. And Cornelius, a Gentile, is praying, a God-fearing man, praying. And what does God do? God works it in such a way that He says to Peter, you go to Cornelius' house and you tell him about the Gospel. And the Gospel goes from Jerusalem to the Gentiles. We see it in Acts 13 as the persecution spread the church out from Jerusalem to Antioch. What did God do when the church at Antioch began to, to gather and to grow? What did they think to do? Let's gather together to pray. And as they're praying... God leads them to send out Paul and Barnabas. It doesn't even really say that they had a plan. He just said, we've called, we've called Paul and Barnabas to, to go and do God's work. Go and do God's will. And they send them out. They lay hands on them and they pray. And they go and take the gospel town by town, city by city, to those who have yet to believe. In Acts 16, as Paul is going about his mission, God redirects his steps in a vision and sends him to Macedonia, to Asia, to to which we see the work that God does in Philippi and Corinth and Athens and these other cities. And even when he's in Corinth, a city that's overwhelmingly um, not followers of Christ, Paul sees it, gets a vision one night as he prays, and God says, stay in the city, for I have more people who have yet to believe the gospel. Every step of the way, God's mission is advanced through his people praying. So how does, it, how does that happen? What is, what is it that prayer does to advance the gospel? Well, just from these, these particular examples, we can say three things that I want us to get. That prayer directs us as we share the gospel. You say, who am I supposed to share the gospel with? Pray. How will I know what to do when I open my mouth to share the gospel? Pray. What if, I, what if I'm not comfortable sharing the gospel? Pray. What if I don't know anyone that I think needs to hear the gospel? Pray. Prayer directs us because prayer invites the work of the Holy Spirit into our life, but also prayer emboldens us to share the gospel. I love how Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 and Colossians chapter 4, Paul, like the, the missionary ex par excellence, right? He says, hey, pray for me that I have boldness to share. You're like, come on, Paul. You know, you had that friend in a prayer, prayer request. You're like, you don't need prayer for that. You got that. Right? Sometimes we're, we're too cynical to, to pray the way that we should. Paul says, pray for me. Pray that I have words when I open my mouth to be clear, to be bold. And how, how good it does us when we linger with God in prayer that He emboldens us to speak on His path, to act on His behalf. Prayer directs us as we share the gospel. It emboldens us to share the gospel and it sustains us as we share the gospel. What if they don't receive it? What if they hate me for it? What if I lose a friend for it? What if they don't understand? What if they ask me a question? What if I share and I don't see any fruit? 
it's in prayer that we're sustained because we're reminded that it's not about us. We're not, we're not dependent on ourselves. What we do in prayer is we're asking God to do what only He can do. Remember how the disciples so discouraged when the rich young ruler walked away. They said, this guy's like prime to follow you, God. He has it all together and he's coming asking you this question. And they're discouraged that he walks away because he loves his possessions. And Jesus says what's impossible with man is possible with God. And how is it that God does the impossible through his people? He does it as his people pray. Prayer is an invitation for the Holy Spirit to use us for the cause of God's mission. When we pray, we're inviting the work of the Holy Spirit to work in us and through us for the sake of His mission. So I asked this question earlier and I end with it now. What would our church be like if everyone prayed like you? What would our church be like if everyone prayed like me? It's a searching question. God's calling us to be a praying people. We've been given access to God's presence through the work of Christ and by the empowering and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And and I want us to to end our time today as we close out this Renew series just with some reflection, right? Um, We've been talking about these basics and returning to these basics and our need for these things to be true in our lives. We're going to have a moment just where... Um, Matt and Natalie will come, the music will play. Uh, I just want, uh, before we close in song, to give you some time to reflect and to, to pray.